and welcome to episode 6 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 20th of March, 2017. I'm Joe, and with me are Ike. Hey. And Jesse. Bonjour. Uh, bonjour, you're back. But Phelim is not with us, so once again, for the third time in a row, we are a three-man show. Phelim is uh, dying in his bed of some sort of man flu, by the sounds of things. We spoke to him briefly beforehand, and he didn't sound good, did he? No, I think he's uh, very legitimately not on the show today. I, I was sunning myself uh, on the... It's not sand, is it? Snowy Alps, uh, and he is definitely worse for wear. So uh, we wish him all the best. Yeah. Um, right. Well, let's get on with it. We haven't got that much in the way of news. Not much has happened of note. But the first thing. Whoa, whoa! Not much has happened. So I'm just going to go in with a quick question that I was thinking about earlier today. Go so on. I wonder if you've heard of ICE. I don't mean the Institute of Civil Engineers or Incar Entertainment. Uh, it's this thing called um, In Case of Emergency on your mobile phones? No. So the idea is that the emergency services want you to uh, have a contact in your phone called ICE so that if you're like knocked out after a motorbike accident or you go into some sort of shock from a bee sting or whatever, you, they can like look through your phone and find ICE and know who to contact in case of emergency. And I always thought well, this is a stupid idea because... My phone's locked, so you have no chance of getting it. And then realised that, well, actually, if I was knocked out, someone could just get my finger, put it on my phone, and, and unlock my phone with my fingerprint. So that's actually quite a good thing. Like That, that would work in favour of people being able to contact my loved ones or what have you. And then I thought, actually... Uh, Obviously, this is a pretty big security flaw. If, if I was like being tracked down by drug dealers and they knocked me out they could just put my finger on my phone and find out all of the details in my phone should that eventuality happen, which it won't happen because I've got three phones, obviously. And I I was just wondering about what your thoughts were on that sort of security issue of having your fingerprint, which is, is useful and a, a good shortcut, but actually I know there's a whole load of issues with being able to copy your fingerprint and things, but also the fact that, you know, if you get knocked out or you're incapacitated or someone chops your finger off, they've got access to your phone. Yeah, and most importantly, your fingerprints don't change. And so it, a password you can change, a, a pattern you can change, but you can't change your fingerprints. So, yeah, I'm not convinced by all this biometric stuff, to be honest. I don't suppose your phone's got it either. Mine hasn't, but um, yours, Ike, is pretty crap, isn't it? No, mine's actually pretty good, thanks. Um, all right. Mine does have fingerprint on there. It's also Ooh, fancy. Got, yeah, it's got some secure ah, two things up to you. Yeah, and I've still got my fingers because let's point out the elephant in the room here. Why are drug dealers cutting off your fingers? <laughs> <laughs> so, what was you doing on the last show when you wasn't here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I had to run to France for a few days. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Now, it's, I'm not convinced by uh, fingerprint. Do you use yours, Ike? Yeah, and so what nobody told me is the, the initial tutorial when you're setting up the phone. It told me about 30 times to put my phone back down on the sensor, and I just assumed I was getting it wrong every time. <laughs> so I put it back down. <laughs> but now it's only got a very, very specific angle of my phone. <laughs> so if you try to get that right, I mean, that was entertaining on Paddy's days. You can probably imagine me trying to yeah. unlock the phone. Oh, man. Anyway, right, enough of this bollocks. Let's go on with the news. Um, not much has happened, but the first one, I think, is very... Um, egregious so nextcloud have been scanning instances installations of nextcloud and own cloud for old outdated versions and 
have been informing government agencies about that, government security agencies, who in turn have been contacting the people's ISPs, who have then been getting letters about it. And some of those people uh, weren't supposed to be running servers at home and are now in trouble with their ISPs, which this is quite frankly outrageous. And um, I, I just I can't see how they're going to get away with this. It, not many people seem to be talking about it, but it, it's just outrageous. Well, those people shouldn't have been running servers on their ISPs. Says you. Well, like I would pick an ISP that I'm allowed to run my server on. Like, really? Well, yeah, surely the fact that you want to do that. So if there's an ISP that only gives you two gig a month. Don't go with that ISP. If the ISP is too expensive, too slow, don't go with that ISP. You know, use your feet, or whatever the phrase is, and, and, and find one that does what you want to do. The fact that this is a very odd roundabout way of the ISPs finding out that those people are hosting servers, okay, it's not ideal. But at the same time, they're breaching their contract with the ISP. You've just so missed the whole fucking point of the story, Jesse, man. Like, the point is not that they were doing something wrong and got busted for it. The point is it was none of fucking Nextcloud's business to be getting involved with it. So all I've done is is put a stake in your first point, and now we bring my stake gun round to your second point. What are they supposed to do? Let people have non-up-to-date servers? Yes. Yes. <laughs> of course. Yes, yes. You, don't, you don't give someone a service and then shop them later for not using the latest version of your service. You give them a better update mechanism. You don't then go and blame them, say, well, they're not using the latest one. Fuck you, I'm going to your ISP and the government to squeal on you. That's, yeah. just, that's just being a dickhead. Exactly. I mean, come on. When you register, when you first install it, I'm pretty sure, like WordPress, you have to put an email address in and have it email you to say, hey, there's a new version available. Why don't you update it for X, Y, and Z reasons? Mostly security. You know, that's the way to do it. If you're going to automate something and, um, you know, obviously if they're scanning and they only know your IP address, they, there's not much they can do about it except report you to someone. But it's none of their business to do that. If it was like an on-premises sort of thing and you had an SLA and they said, we'll keep you up to date and we'll make sure that your installation is fine, there are no vulnerabilities, that's completely different. Oh, yeah, if it's a hosted solution, yeah, yeah. but... If they're just putting their files out there, a load of PHP files, and it's up to you what you want to do with them, it's free software. You're free to run an old version if you want to be an idiot. Can you imagine they did this with Linux distros? <sighs> like they started remotely scanning your host to make sure you was using the latest version of, your, of that software. Otherwise, we're going to report you. People yeah, would but, be up in arms. But is it, is it the reporting that you're unhappy with, or is it the fact they're scanning and finding them? scanning in the first place they, they have no business doing it i mean any, anyone could be scanning and finding them and at least they're scanning and finding them in a white hat type way rather than a black hat type way but no, why are they doing it in the first place it's exactly. none of their fucking business yeah i can't believe that you are <laughs> arguing for their for this case jesse they're, they're keeping their customers more secure than they were they're not customers <laughs> I mean, like, users then. What's the difference between a user and a customer? Customers pays? pay for a service. This is not. This is not a service. This is them just making sure that they tick all the right boxes in terms of PR so they look good, saying we've got millions of secure installations on Nextcloud. Yeah. That's, that's what this is. And they're that... defending this. So if I download a piece of software, I can expect that to be remotely monitored. Where is the freedom in that? 
Yeah. Because this violates fundamental freedoms. It could be remotely monitored because it's on the web. Like, the fact that you have a server which is publicly facing means that anyone can remotely monitor it. Right. It's not... But if you make software and then you go and monitor it afterwards, it's none of your business. Yes, if I go and set up a server now, if I say, ran an IRC server or a WordPress installation because I'm that stupid, but let's just say that I did, right? <laughs> let's just run both of them. I can expect someone's going to be knocking on that firewall all day long, right? That's just power for the course with the internet. However, Nextcloud are using that as an excuse for their actions. So if I go and download, again, if I had an IRC server, I've got PHP free free, P- PHP BB free. That's a stupid name. However, if I got one of those, it's open source. I've not bought anything. That is basically where it stops and ends because I don't have a contract with them. I've not bought a service of them. I'm using open source software to then later on go and scan it and shop me for not having the latest software. Fuck off. It's none of your business. It's my system. You're violating my freedoms. Get your fucking mitts out of my system. It's as simple as that. Exactly. I couldn't agree more, man. Look at how WordPress does it, right? Um, I know you've been pretty down on WordPress, but whatever. <laughs> if you have a WordPress installation, um, I, don't, I think it's on by default. You can probably stop it, but it will do automatic updates for you, right? Which is good. Or it will notify you when there's an update available by email. As I said, you put an email in at the beginning of the process of installation, and then it emails you to say, hey, it would be a good idea to up- update. And if you log into your control panel and you've got a big red banner that says, hey, update now to stay secure, that I'm perfectly happy with. You know, if if it's kind of, um, if it can scan itself, if it can call home um, or, you know, check update servers and see that it's out of date and, and warn you about that, that's absolutely fine because, you know, you're that's in the code, you know it's going to do that. But if I wouldn't expect WordPress to scan the, the internet and find the IP address of um, my WordPress installation and then contact whoever the ISP is, be it a home ISP or be it in a data center somewhere. You know, it's it's none of their business, as Ike said. And I, I can't believe that you are trying to defend them, Jesse. I, I can't believe that you're, you must be just playing devil's advocate here. But they have the barriers you're already explaining, so there's the email address and what have you. And it's all very well saying, we have this new thing, everyone should update. But isn't it useful to then say, we know you haven't updated, Get like because they don't have this red banner on um, uh, on Nextcloud. Well, maybe they actually it's Nextcloud, they probably do. So they could well have that red banner in the same way that you have other self-hosted solutions. But having an email that says, we know that you know, we can we can see you without doing anything particularly nefarious. And so other people who are nefarious can also see you. It is important that you do this. You know, it's a, it's a it's the last reminder. It's the most. I agree. The way they've gone about it is a little bit. Could have just used the email addresses. Go into the ISPs is a bit overboard. Yeah, but, but what I'm saying to you is the the email addresses. They shouldn't have manually done that. The software itself should be checking. It would be trivial to put that into the code. Check home once a day or once a week, whatever. What is the latest um, update number? It would be nice to have that. So you can toggle it on and off um, just to give you the ultimate freedom, but whatever. And then, you know, if date, if version number is lower than the version number on the update server, then send an email. And so it's the next card wouldn't have anything to do with that. It would be your software on your server emailing you to tell you that it's a good idea to update. 
And that is the only way that I can see is, you know, it's not a perfect solution by any stretch of the imagination because you're going to end up with people not applying those updates and you're going to end up with several versions out of date um, installations of Nextcloud getting taken over and exploited. But that is not Nextcloud's problem. As long as they've got documentation clearly showing you why it's important to update, how you should update, and having the files available to do that in a timely fashion, then that is where their responsibility begins and ends. So you you mentioned there the idea of uh, your server being um, exploited. You know, let's let's say it does get taken over and it is added to a, a botnet or, you know, a, a group of computers that they then throw out um, DDoSs and things like this. If Nextcloud and WordPress and uh, whatever other servers and hosting methods there are, or also Microsoft, who searches for non-secure um, versions of XP and what have you, if they all scan the internet and all found the vulnerable software, vulnerable servers, vulnerable computers, and Extreme I know turned them all off remotely, there'd be no DDoSes. <laughs> But again, it's not their business to be going about stuff. But that look at way. The, look at the bigger picture. You could set, you could save the internet. I mean, look at how the IoT took down Twitter. Like, is that the world you want to live in? Well, you, you you're such an authoritarian man. Like, hmm. that's such authoritarian thinking. Like, people need to have their hands held and be told what to do. And yeah, they probably should do. But you, at what cost? Freedom. Microsoft and- is a bad example. Uh, you. However you have Windows on your system, somebody has paid for it. Yeah. So you have a license, and that has its own connotations and its own requirements on the vendor for their responsibilities. Let's also not forget about how how much value there is to malware. So without the malware, without the problems, without the zombie computers there wouldn't be a security industry and it's worth a lot of money, right? So I'm not saying one way or the other, but it definitely pays a lot of people for those vulnerabilities to exist. That's just a fact of the world. Now, Microsoft is a paid for thing. If you go to WordPress and you use one of their hosted solutions, you're paying them. You have a contract and agreement with them. Likewise, for OwnCloud or NextCloud, you know, you can pay those and they'll set it up for you. But if you've got to host it on your own machine, that's like someone walking into your house and telling you, by the way, that door's not secure. Why did you come into my fucking house for? Yeah, or saying that your your telly is a, um electrical risk, you know, it's an electric shock hazard. Well, that if I have got a telly that is, you know, got bare cables coming out of it, then, and I kill myself from it, it's my fucking problem, not yours. Natural selection. Yeah, yeah but what happens when that telly bursts into flames and your block of flats goes down taking down all 20 other people well it's easy we'll get the drug dealer who cut your finger off (laughs) and he'll help us so i mean i i yeah i see what you're saying but with the analogy of microsoft and the fact that you've paid for it so just taking that point of of having paid for it and obviously you therefore expect that to work i can go and buy a car and if that doesn't pass his mot i can't drive it on the road so there is a, a way in which you can buy something. There is another like 
layer of law and rule that says this has to be working properly. This this can't just go on the road in an unfit state which causes danger to other people. This has to be a, a safe car. And in the same way that you have bought uh, a Microsoft product or you've bought uh, a server product, if that is unsafe on the internet, there should be another like law over the top that says you can't go on the internet with that and we're taking it off. Okay, but... Now, to go back to your MOT example, who is enforcing that? Is it Ford? Is it Voxel? Is it... Well, it's not going to be Rover, is it? Come on. But... <laughs> Game <laughs> you know, of the times. It, it's not those guys enforcing it. It's the government. It's the agencies. It's not up for some free ranger on the internet to say, well, you know, we make this software and Jesus, we want to look good. I mean, what was their intention here? Because they didn't contact the people directly. They scanned it. They did it in a way that definitely raises eyebrows because they didn't tell anyone about it. And then people are only finding out because they're being contacted by their ISPs to say they've been contacted by somebody else. And now you can't go on the internet. You know, you've been running the server. What is the intention there? Because if they was going to be upfront about it and say, look, if you're going to have a Netflix, ins- uh, a Netflix, what? If you're going to have an, an xCloud installation, then we want to make sure you're secure. And this is what we're going to be doing. Here's the code for the scans we're running. And we're doing this in an automated fashion. And you can see the results, blah, 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 privacy policy, all that crap. They didn't do any of that. There was no transparency. If they'd said a couple of months ago, we're going to set up the service. This is what it entails. This is everything that it does. And you can go and look at it. Then people can say, well, I'm not going to use this anymore. Or I am. And I think the majority of people probably would have went, you know what? Yeah, fine. They've been transparent about it, but they haven't. It's been cloak and daggers. And now it's, it's responding after the fact. And it doesn't look well for them because the only question that should be on anyone's mind is what is their intent here? Yeah. So I, I suppose back to this idea of the government being in charge. I mean, there is no one world government yet. So I suppose someone like ICANN or, you know, some organization like that might be who should be scanning and informing people. But it, it just doesn't, to me, it, the, the um, not vendor, but the, the the author of the software shouldn't be the one informing uh, governments and ISPs, as far as I'm concerned. If you have, you know, I, I take your point, Jesse, about like the IoT situation where that DDoSed the uh, DNS system and brought down a lot of the internet for a while. Um and that's not a good situation, but I don't think if you're going to be authoritarian about it, be properly authoritarian and have an organization, as I said, someone a bit like ICANN or something like that, that will control it. Um, you know, will will whose whole job it is is to scan and inform and try and shut down, or or at least try and update these um, vulnerable um, devices and installations. I think that that is the only solution as far as I'm concerned. But um, we've been talking about this for like 15 minutes, so we'd better move on. Um, Let's talk about Ubuntu, um, Ubuntu 12.04 ESM, which is extended security maintenance. So Ubuntu 12.04 is five years old soon, and that means it's going to be out of support. But there are still a number of servers and maybe even desktops, if you think about Munich, for example, using Ubuntu 12.04. And so what Canonical have decided to do is offer a paid-for service which gives you extra support after, you know, which will continue after April, which to me seems like an absolutely excellent idea. 
and gives them more credibility from the kind of enterprise side of things and ties in with the fact that that is where they're making their money on the cloud and, and stuff like that and in the enterprise where you've got Red Hat offering ridiculously long support lengths and they need to compete with that. And so instead of the free five years, now you're going to get longer than that, which uh, is is good news, I reckon. Why Why do people need more than five years of support? Well, because if you are in the enterprise, you don't really want to be upgrading your machines frequently, do you? Yeah, not frequently, but five years, that's half a decade. I mean... This has had a load of support. This looks like Microsoft 101, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I was going to say two letters for you, XP. How many people are still running XP now? Quite a lot. Let me tell you a quick story. Very brief, I promise. My flatmate came home today. He works for the NHS. And he said, tomorrow I'm going in and we're getting Windows 10. I said, oh, from Windows 7? He said, no, from XP. Yep. So the NHS has been, I hope has been paying for security updates to XP all this time. They, did, they didn't bother with Vista. They didn't bother with 7. They're going straight to 10, or, or at least his department is. But the fact they've been doing that, the fact that that option is available because Microsoft have allowed them to pay, it just seems... I don't know. It, it, it seems ridiculous that you could need that long a support period. Or people are, people are that sluggish. Like IT departments are that sluggish to, to update stuff. What IT departments in being ridiculous shocker? I mean, come on, it's it's very standard for the the wheels the bu- wheels of bureaucracy to move very slowly, and for people not to want to upgrade or companies to not want to upgrade hardware and software. They just want to get something that works and stick with it as long as they possibly can. And it's cheaper for them to just bung canonical uh, a few quid every month or every year to keep their machines going than it is to pay someone to come and update them. And yes, you and I could update a 12i4 box to 16i4 very easily, but you know we would be technical enough to fix anything, any bugs or whatever that come with that. And I've had that many times. Whereas in the enterprise, you need it to be just solidly working. And if 12i4 is solidly working for you, be it um, on a server or whatever, you, why would you bother changing it? And you know, it just makes more financial sense to keep paying to have it supported. You only have to change it every five years. I mean, when I let's say I waited five years to have to upgrade my box, I would do a new compave, and I would then have to have a struggling afternoon trying to look back through my notes of what I was doing and work out how you know, let's say Nextcloud had been updated in the five years that I've been using it, or like the. Um, torrent server I was using in the five years, blah blah blah. Like I would, I would reinstall them and be fine. But that would take me a long time. A, I don't have that many things on it compared to enterprise. Fine, but B, I'm not a professional paid to do these things, and I just it amazes me that they're like, no, put it off tomorrow, 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 all the way through when they have an IT department or a professional department who's supposed to be keeping things up to date, this is their job to keep things working in an up-to-date fashion. Am I I entirely naive? I must be entirely naive. My question, however, is what is the support term on uh, Ike's distro, which name escapes me, Solus? I'm I'm sorry, what? (laughs) It escapes you? It's been a month, Ike, I'm sorry. You bitch. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's rolling in it, so it's indefinite. Yeah, forever. 
uh, the the benefit of rolling versus the periodicals. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 ups and downs to both approaches. I mean, you know, if you install twelve oh four now and then you install it in a month and update it, they're both the same thing. If you install Solus now and then Solus in a month and update them both, they both end up being the same thing, but it was not the original thing you got. So the reproducibility factor is basically gone. Mm. I mean, that's kind of the downside of it. And it is, it's basically, it's XP all over again. But And I I, I kind of side with both of them here because on, on the one hand, you've got an ID department which is going to be holding things together with glue for another few years now. And then that's when you start getting into the legacy maintenance cycles. And you see this basically on the Dilbert comics, where instead of investing in the new system, which fixes all the problems and allows you to move forward, you're instead throwing resources at keeping this legacy system going for as long as you possibly can. So I can see I can see the bad sides, but I can also see the good sides where should we go and throw a load of money at upgrading it now, or will we just swing canonical a few quid there and they'll keep us sweet? So I, I can see... I can see the good and bad of both of them, really. But I see it in terms of competing with Red Hat, because if you are looking to implement new systems today and you've got a choice between Ubuntu, which will give you five years maximum, but realistically that was 1604, so you're looking at about four years now um, on 1604, or Red Hat, which will give you potentially a lot longer than that. And if you're willing to pay them enough, probably you know a lot longer than that. Um, whereas now... If Ubuntu is bringing in this um, extended support, uh, extended security maintenance program, if it works out well for them with twelve oh four, then the chances are they'll do it for fourteen oh four and sixteen oh four. And that, as uh, the person who is writing the checks for the IT department, is a very attractive proposition, isn't it? To know that you've got, even if you're planning to move off it and upgrade or whatever, just to know in the back of your mind that if you don't have the budget to upgrade, then it's not going to cost you too much to keep it on life support you know potentially indefinitely so I, I, I think that in terms of competition with red hat which is something that we really need because red hat as much as their success is admirable if we had a company that was a similar size to them competing with them then that would definitely be good for the market wouldn't it and the only way we're going to get that is if people can offer products that are on a par with them and ubuntu and Canonical can't do that yet but steps like this seem to be a way of you know their steps towards that hmm. and it, it it's kind of about return on investment isn't it and just looking at the plans and pricing here so for the ubuntu advantage desktop if you wanted to be because uh, you have to be an ubuntu advantage customer for this so it's saying here price per desktop per year minimum order 50 desktops is 150 dollars a year per desktop that's kind of cheap yeah that's what i thought as well it's, it's very competitive isn't it yeah, and it is, it's kind of hard to find a bad point with this, really, because as much as I'd like to say that I'd always want to run the latest stuff, if I did have, like, arbitrary figure, 300, 400 machines out there, and I could just then go and pay Canonical, and I could have the support with it as well, I'd be tempted. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you know that they're going to keep getting these updates and everything... You, it's it must be very tempting if you've got you know offices full of these or server rooms full of these that are doing their job. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good that you can see. I'm not surprised that you can see it. I mean, obviously you are on one side of the fence 
um, with your rolling distro with the latest of everything, mm. but you do appreciate that there are there is a time and a place for legacy yeah. systems. But, but we don't we don't know how long this is going to last for this extended security maintenance. Is is it indefinite? Are they going to have to do this for every single one? I mean, their their team would therefore increase exponentially. At some point, they have to say, "I'm sorry, you've had this installed for 50 years now. You're going to have to upgrade it, mate." Well, it sounds like you need to register for the webinar, Jesse, if you want your questions answered on how long. And that I think will come up in this webinar, which is uh, Wednesday, March 22nd at 4 p.m. UK time. So. Um, so that is going to be effectively tomorrow when you're listening to this. Um, and I'm sure that question is going to come up. How long are you going to offer this for? Yeah. Yeah. It's the only other question on my lips. Apart from what's next on the news. Let me see. Death of Ubuntu Mate for PowerPC. Oh. Now, am I the only person who scratches my head and thinks who still runs or owns a PowerPC? Well, if you've got an old Mac, basically, is the bottom line. And it's this old story, isn't it, about revitalizing old hardware and whether or not it's worth it with the the power efficiency and that kind of thing. And the bottom line is that Ubuntu 17.04 is not going to support PowerPC 32-bit. Um, there are some kind of nightly builds at the moment, but they have now been dropped. So it, the, the architecture has totally been dropped. Um, and Ubuntu Mate was the obvious choice to run a, a desktop on a PowerPC machine. Uh, old Macs. I, I don't know what else was running PowerPC. You should know this, Ike, shouldn't you, eh? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, well, it's suffice to say old Macs anyway, which must be really old because the Intel Macs came in in the sort of core, uh, core duo. I think before the core two duos possibly were the very first Intel ones. So you're going back well over 10 years. Uh, probably more than that. Um, and from my own, I thought that these old PowerPC, um, the, the G4 MacBooks and the G5 uh, desktops, I thought they performed reasonably well with Ubuntu Mate on them because I see, I often see screenshots. I see this on the Google Plus group. That there's a lot of activity for it. But speaking to WinPress about it, he said that it's just painfully slow and he was just keen to see it die. And um, this was announced a long time ago, but what, why it's in the news is because there is a fork appearing, which uh, we'll see how long that lasts, but it's going to be called... Um, Mate PowerPC Remix 2017. That's the one, yes. And there are some ISOs available, which is good. I really hope that it continues because I, I hate to see distros die. We talked about... Um, the ARM version of Manjaro dying, which is never a good thing. But you, I suppose you have to question. It's it's like the death of 32-bit um, x86, isn't it? Which is slowly but surely happening. And it, you can just sort of see the, the timeline of supported hardware. You know, the, the supported hardware is just falling off, isn't it, as you go back in time. And if you get into 15-year-old machines being just not supported anymore, and how useful are they? Not really, is the bottom line. Yeah, I, I think this has got not many legs, and there there doesn't seem to be a big enough user base. From my own, my own point of view, I don't know anyone or can think of anyone I've ever met who's had a power PC. So, well, there are people who are using old Macs, but none of them are trying to run Linux on it. And so it seems like a very niche 
And so I'm not surprised, yeah, a very small niche, and so I'm not surprised that it's uh, sort of dwindling and, and and going away. But, you know, if uh, someone has an itch to scratch and they have a power PC or power PCs that they want to run Marte on, then, you know, more power to them if they want to. Oh, yeah, very good pun. I had a um, clamshell G3 MacBook. Um, you know, the really, um, the, like they were orange and pink and stuff, the, the clamshell ones. Anyway, I bought one of those just to try what Linux would be like on it, and it was horrendous. It was just worse than a Raspberry Pi 1, basically. So it was. I just sold it. Um, it was terrible. But that was a G3. I, don't, I had thought that the G4 was significantly faster but maybe i'm wrong um anyway that was the only three news stories worth talking about this couple of weeks so a bit of admin then uh if you want to get in contact with us latenightlinux.com slash contact which has got all sorts of ways uh the email address is show at latenightlinux.com um or there's uh, twitter and facebook and google plus and stuff and the telegram group latenightlinux.com slash telegram and I just want to talk about DigitalOcean briefly. We're not sponsored by them, but we do have an affiliate link. And how that works is if you go to latenightlinux.com slash DigitalOcean, you will be forwarded to their site and they will offer you $10 credit to check out the service for free. And then if you use that $10 credit and then pay, I think it's another $25, then we get $25. So you have to try it out, like it, and stick with it for us to get anything. But worst case scenario is you'll try it out for free and not like it. Um, and DigitalOcean, as far as I'm concerned, is a great service. They have um, VPSs, basically, so you can have a Linux box out in the cloud to do with whatever you want. Uh, you can install all sorts of different distros on there. And if you want to try out, um, for example, Nextcloud, if you're brave enough, if you uh, if you don't want them scanning your home, then at least you, they can scan your DigitalOcean droplet instead. Um, uh, you could just do what Jesse does and host it all at home and uh, hope that you don't get a letter from your ISP. Um, but yeah, check it out anyway. It's, it's a great service. They've got data centers all over the world, so there's going to be somewhere fairly close to you. LateNightLinux.com slash DigitalOcean, and uh, you can check it out for free. And a couple of events, Fostock Live 2017, which is the 24th of June at the Harrison. We talked about this last time. It's going to be us, minus Ike, because <clears throat> he's not coming, um, and the Ubuntu podcast and Linux Voice, and then a kind of mashup show with Stuart Langridge and Dave Megaslippers. Um, should be a good night. There are now tickets available. We talked about it last time, but now there are tickets available. Half of them have gone before it's even been mentioned on a podcast, just from people following on social media and stuff. So get a ticket as soon as you can. It's free to come. Uh, there'll be a bucket for uh, voluntary contributions. But um, yeah, it, it's better if you get a ticket, then we know how many people are coming and stuff. Um, and it's a very small venue. So do get a ticket as soon as you can. And then OGCamp 2017, which you're going to, Jesse? Yeah, I'm indeed. I haven't quite worked out the details of how we're getting there and uh, hotels and what have you, but, but we'll be there. Yeah, and there's tickets available for that. Now I'm just looking when it is. It's the 19th and 20th of August in Canterbury at uh, Christchurch University, uh, which is in the city centre there. So, yeah, there's, again, uh, free pay-what-you-want tickets for that. 
And if, if you're not familiar with the UK so well, I mean, Canterbury is absolutely dead centre. It's right in the middle. It's easy to get to from everywhere. Yeah, you can get there. Uh, you can just basically walk there from anywhere in the UK. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There's a tube there. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of uh, towards the southeast coast, isn't it? It's quite near France. So, um, yeah, towards, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, for me, it's pretty easy, to be honest. It's just around the M25 and down a bit. So <laughs> I'm not bothered. But, um, yeah, if you're coming from up north, then you kind of have to go in and out of London. But it's going to be a great event. It's um, basically a three-day event. The Friday's unofficial, but there's usually a party. And then there's two days of talks and stuff. Um, and basically anyone who's anyone in the uh, free and open source software scene in the UK goes to it. Um, we didn't have one last year, but we had, um, I don't know, we're having one this year anyway. That's all that matters. Uh, so yeah come to Odd Camp it should be good um, we'll be there Phelim's coming to that one as well I think yeah are you coming to the U- uh, I was about to say the UK I do mean the UK sorry pardon me Ike are you coming over to England for that um <laughs> you're too scared to come over to the UK because <laughs> what was that about drug dealers and fingers anyway. <laughs> yeah exactly no it took me years years to get out of there I'm no rush to go running back Oh, uh, well, fair enough. We can't force you, I suppose. We'll just make you feel bad afterwards, tell you how amazing it was. Yeah. Uh, speaking of amazing, I heard there's another Linux podcast, or maybe a video cast, in fact, uh, called Destination Linux, and they've had a, a recent guest on. Yeah, they've had a couple of recent guests on. How long ago did you do it, um, Ike? Ooh, it's got to be a couple of months now. Yeah, getting on for it. And uh, and I noticed that yours has got a couple of thousand views on YouTube. So uh, mine is coming out uh, next Friday, I think. So we'll see who wins. Yeah, as if you're going to not win. (laughs) Love this competition. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't check out Ike's one because that will give him more numbers on that YouTube video. But yeah, we, we had a chat for like over an hour about just all sorts of things, basically all sorts of Linux and how I got into uh podcasting and that sort of stuff uh i haven't got a link yet obviously it's not out but it'll be out before the next episode i'll probably put a link in the next episode show notes um we mentioned it on the last show that ike uh you have bought a 4k monitor and you hadn't had much chance to test it probably because you didn't have the right cable but now you have got it what what's it's not hdmi is it it's um slim port no not slim port display port display port that's it yeah and that supports full 4K at um, 60 frames a second. Yeah, 60 hertz. Yeah. Just so that I, I, you know, have it in my head because I've, I've not been fortunate enough to mess around with a 4K or have a graphics card that has 4K because they come mutually together. Uh, the the back of the monitor has like this this big HDMI, and you've got a, a new graphics card that has this small HDMI. Is, is that how it's working? Actually, for me, it's hooked up to an Intel NUC. Oh, straight on the HDMI port on that? So I had it on the HDMI on that, but I've got like a separate mini display port uh, thing there, which I totally built in, and then I just run the mini display port from there into the monitor instead of the HDMI and hope the screen comes on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, clearly, I'm clearly way too far behind because I assume you still have to have super fancy graphics cards to make any of this 4K shit work. Oh. Right. Um, well, anyway, what's, what's interesting about it isn't necessarily the screen itself. Um, it's what distros look like in, with, with this high DPI support and, and what the desktop environments look like. Now, <laughs> I was going to ask you to try XFCE, but that would be completely pointless because it's GTK2 and it just would be tiny. You'd need a magnifying glass to use it. Yeah. 
Um, uh, we'll get we'll kind of circle back to Solus and what the fuck you need to do to fix that. But let's go for the big ones. I suppose Unity is one of the big ones. How does that work with it? So the the problem I have with this monitor, it's not just 4K, it's 28-inch. And high DPI by most systems is literally done on density, not size, which I found very, 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 very odd. So it's supposed to be a density of 190 DPI or somewhere around that. Which isn't actually that high, is it? No, it's not. But given the size of my monitor, it's around 160 DPI because it's it's the same amount of pixels, but across a bigger surface. Yeah. And there is not a single desktop environment that will automatically detect it as high DPI, which doesn't sound like a problem. But if you've got a 28-inch monitor that's actually running at native 4K mm. and not high DPI, so high DPI is basically make everything twice as big, right? Yeah. So it takes up the same physical amount of space as it would on 1080, but it's got more detail, more definition, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. There has been no desktop that can automatically detect that because they make the naive assumption that if it's less than 190 DPI, then it doesn't qualify for high DPI. But 4K natively is unusable for a desktop because again you need a magnifying glass to actually get anything done and i think you saw some of my screenshots i was like seriously how can anybody use this this is absurd you had something running in a vm didn't you that was just ridiculously small yeah you couldn't see it like it it's still the same amount it gets confusing because you're running at 4k but things are bigger so that it looks like 1080 just with more detail and then you actually see something that doesn't have high dpi support like qemu and inside that machine, I think it was running at like a 1200 or something like that. <laughs> but you just couldn't see it. It looked like a postage stamp on my screen. Yeah. Uh, Unity itself, so Unity 7, that would be on Ubuntu 16.10. Again, no automatic detection. But kudos here. When I went into the uh, the control center, because they have a forked version of Gnome control center, I went into displays where you would kind of expect this stuff to be. And I haven't used Unity in a long time, so I was just going on new user guessing. There it is. There's a little thing where you can drag across to change the scale, and everything dynamically updates, and then you can apply or cancel it. And it was as simple as that. So I put everything up to two, and everything was immediately usable and worked really well. There were a couple of dodgy-ish icons. But for the most part, I mean, like, the HUD itself looked absolutely fine. The icon scaled. The, like, the side panel and everything, a dock or dash or whichever you call it, everything just automatically scaled to the right size. And I was really, really, really impressed. I've got to admit. All right. And um, mm. what about web browsing, though? Presumably it was um, Control and Plus all the way to make it actually viewable. No, uh, Firefox was pre-installed and it just went along with the high DPI settings. Oh, great. It just worked. Did you find any applications that were a bit sketch? <laughs> Loads. <laughs> Loads. Right. So even uh, as an example of an application I'm using now, which would be the same anywhere, Audacity. Yeah. It's absurdly small, or things like uh, HexChat, all those kind of applications. So if the, the toolkit doesn't have the support for it, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. So these all run on a on GTK two, do they? Yeah, I mean GTK two apps, you are completely you're completely screwed. Uh, GTK three apps, they have built in high DPI support, but if they do any custom stuff, then there's there are rooms for errors. 
One of the ones that actually surprised me most was Telegram. It's got built-in high DPI support, and it's even got a menu option to manually adjust the scaling factor. I was pleasantly surprised with that. You've probably fallen in love with Telegram, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to marry it. <laughs> so I always hear that um, Gnome has good uh, 4K high DPI support. Uh-huh. How, how was that? Uh-huh. How was my desktop of choice? <laughs> so... <laughs> I did the logical thing and it was like sudo apt install uh, Ubuntu GNOME desktop got the whole meta package installed which immediately trashed Unity which was quite sad about um, this is when I started hitting actual Ubuntu problems like the installation failed I had to do a sudo apt upgrade again afterwards because dpackage had failed to configure some bits it was a complete mess then Unity itself became broken so rebooted. Uh, I kept I kept light DM. Um, you don't get high DPI on the login, but you do on the lock screen, which I think is Unity specific. They have their own lock screen. So in I go. I'd had to reset the settings again just to see how it would detect. It didn't detect. I was like, okay. You go into the control center. There's no options for scaling. You'd go into the display thing, because that's kind of what you'd expect if you had your Windows head on. You'd, you'd go into the display because my fonts and stuff are all too small. Yeah. It's not there. You have to use uh, the GNOME tweak tool, which isn't part of the control center. Then you have to change it in two places for it actually to fully work. So you have to set the, the window scaling factor, and it's under the fonts as well, the high DPA, high DPI scaling factor. So that's two different places I've had to do it now. And even then, the, the top bar didn't dynamically update. Uh, I had fuzzy icons. I had to completely log out, log back in. The title bars were still a bit funny. So I had to do a full reset of the settings. Go up, and it eventually sort of worked. It just, it was a lot of messing about. So on the usability front, it completely flopped, completely and utterly flopped. All right, so so once you'd configured it and stuff, it still wasn't quite right then? It still wasn't as good as Unity? No, and I was really, really surprised about that because you, you kind of expect, like, the, the, the trailblazer there to be known, right? Yeah. But it, it wasn't. It was... If you hadn't known that you had to use Tweak Tool to go through and find this stuff, you were completely screwed. All right. Well, oh, sorry. I was, I was I was listening to you and I was do, I was following it on my uh, tweak tool when I started clicking window scaling on high DPI without having a high DPI monitor. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting dangerous, so I was going to close that while we record. Yeah, be sensible. Do that afterwards, I think. Um, okay, uh, what about uh, Plasma Five then? How does that fare? You can you can really dig into this while Phelim isn't here. Don't worry. Yeah, about yeah, he's not here now, so I can just tear the head off it. Um, so at this time, I decided to adopt whatever defaults it gave me so it was again it was a sudo apt install and i went for kubuntu desktop i didn't have time to download uh, neon which would have a newer version of plasma which i should do at some point but i was going with the general defaults of ubuntu being you know the, the popular choice if you like installed it went with sddm and let's just say that definitely doesn't support high dpa because I had this slim line across the middle of the screen, and you forget, again, it's it's a 28-inch monitor, but when it's all high DPI and all set up nicely, you forget all this stuff, 
until high DPI is not working. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like this slim bar across the middle, but I literally had to physically get close to the screen to understand what I was typing in. Logged in, the Plasma desktop was much the same, didn't support out of the box. And I at that point, I was like, okay, no desktop is going to support my particular monitor because the DPI isn't high enough. And I think they should change that calculation, but I'll get onto that afterwards. So I went into system settings in the menu. Then I immediately became lost because it's a kitchen sink. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's got an option in it. Then there was like three different things which looked like they had something to do with my display. I finally found the right one. And I think it was under advanced or something stupid. But go into it and it's like a, within the hardware section. And I'm looking at it, it's like there's an advanced drop down underneath it. And then I saw this button, which was very unobvious, and it just said scaling. Again, if you're a new user, you, it's not going to make any sense to you because you're going to think it's going to be to do something like a scaling a projector or something, which is what I immediately thought. But that brings up another dialog box where you can adjust the scaling factor. We have a UI that was kind of similar to how Unity had done it. It was just stupidly hard to find it in the first place. Adjusted the scaling factor, no difference. I was told I had to restart the desktop session, which is a bit meh, because with Unity, it dynamically updated the whole desktop. And, you know, I'd already had the good stuff at that point, so I was disappointed. Yeah. Logged out, logged back in. Was quite surprised to find out that the panel itself was exactly the same size as before. <laughs> the menu was now scaled, but it was too large. Even though it was scaling uh, supposedly for high DPI, it was far too large. It kind of felt like I'd gone back to 1024 by 768. Yeah. And everything was just like too large. On top of that, I went through a few of the applications. I thought, okay, what's the application support like? Mostly okay with the KDE and Plasma applications, except all of the icons are too small. None of the icons scale. So you'll have these menu entries, like the, the right-click on the desktop. All of the icons will be absurdly tiny, whereas the fonts will be the right size. So, yeah, and it's, it, again, it was, it was finding it was very, very hard. It didn't update automatically. There was no consistency, very poor user experience with the way in which it was implemented. So I was, I was really quite disappointed there because I was secretly hoping that it would be, you know, it would have been mind blowing and it would have just worked out of the box because it was a completely separate stack to everything else, but bitterly disappointed with that. And so cute apps, I mean, that must have been particular interest to you, like even yeah. that's the way you're moving with Budgie. Yeah. <laughs> Disappointing by the sounds of things. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was a real kick in the teeth. Obviously, I'm sort of invested in that side of things. And yeah, well, I mean, I've got to the point now, I, with the whole budgie thing going cute, I, I really don't care about the cute part anymore because it, it's almost like when people are trying to engage with you about this, it's almost like they're putting brownie points on their own resume. And yeah, I've not had the greatest experience there. And I don't care what technology Budgie is built out of at the end of the day, as long as it makes sense and gives the experience that people need. All right. We'll just, we'll just, just gently coax you away from Budgie rant. And uh, do you think it would have been any different had you used fresh installs of something like Ubuntu GNOME rather than trying to install GNOME on top of Ubuntu? Or, for example, KD Neon 
or something like this, where they've you know really put all their focus into that one uh, desktop environment, or, or Fedora with GNOME on top. Do you think anything would have been different, or no? Wouldn't have been any different, and that's where it goes back to me being a developer as well. I understand the technical limitations of the toolkits and the way that these things are implemented. So the the GTK free and all the bits of the stack around that. At the moment, they have the best IDPI support, hands down. They have the best IDPI support. In terms of QML applications, they're actually really, really good, but Qt widgets suck when it comes to IDPI. They, they just suck. So if I would had a newer version of the stack, then yes, it would have potentially have been better in terms of KDE and Plasma. But at the end of the day, New users are not going to be downloading, you know, KDE and Neon. I'm, I'm sorry, but they're going to be going for the main Ubuntu and Ubuntu derivatives. And that's the user experience they would have had. Now, for GNOME itself, uh, 3.24 is going to be out, I think, on the 22nd, which does have better high DPI support. But all of them are working out high DPI in exactly the same way. So if my monitor was half the size, or even less than half the size, I could have a 24-inch monitor, and it would have been detected as high DPI. It's the way that it's been worked out completely. It's completely ass backwards. It's going by the actual physical size of your screen. Even though for years we've known that edit data from monitors on Linux is almost always trash. Getting the right mode lines, getting the right resolutions, getting the right refresh rate, even getting the right physical size of your monitor has always been bad in Linux. Yet the toolkits decided to use that as a metric for determining high DPI. As opposed to, what is your actual resolution? And how many times does 1K fit in there? I.e. 1920 by 1080, right? And if if it's not a clean division, then it cannot possibly be uh, a high DPI contender, right? Whereas 1080 resolution fits into 4K, funnily enough, four times. And there is no remainder. So that would be a scale factor of two. So it'd be how many times it fits into it divided by two. That should be how they're working it out. But they don't. And that's the core problem. So a lot of screens would just magically start working if they fix the logic. Yeah. So did you get a chance to test Mate then? Yes. And? (laughs) Shit. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be working with those guys and trying to make it better anyway, because obviously I'm invested in Mate as well. Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't have the, the basic support there. It has the toolkit support. Um, but I mean, you know, to, to go back to Budgie again, we had to do certain things in the panel to accommodate for the whole concept of application pixels versus device pixels. So two device pixels being one application pixel. So for the panel, you know, it's, it's technically twice the size, but you've only requested a size half of that. So my panel on my screen, I've asked it, say, to be 48 pixels. Really, it's double that. But to the application, it's still 48 pixels. But when you're requesting things like um, the reserved screen estate, X11 itself and Xorg server, they see it in device pixels. So you've then got to have your scale factor multiplied by a real size for your panel to actually give you that high DPI reserve across the top. So that's the sort of stuff that would also have to happen within Mate. And what about Wayland? Is that going to fix any of these problems? Some of them, actually, yes. So I don't have like a load of monitors at the moment, but basically, if you had a high DPI laptop and you know it, it automatically works, that's all good. Then you connect a non-high DPI display, 
it will still be using the scale factor on the external monitor because it can only have one scale factor per entire screen, like the the virtual screen. What, for X, you mean? Yeah, okay. and that's currently the way that it's implemented. So likewise, if I had uh, an internal one and then I hook up to a 4K external and that one's detected as high DPI, it's going to screw with the scale factor on the laptop itself. Wayland, they're looking to solve it there by having individual DPI and scale settings per output, if you like. So that will help significantly there. Although, I'd like to think they could have easily done that on X anyway, but whatever. (laughs) Well, no doubt we're going to come back to this. Every time we look at a new distro or desktop environment or whatever, you're going to have to chuck it on that 4K monitor for us and to see how it fares. Well, how... What about Solus? I mean, surely this has been a flying success and Solus is perfect and it's got it all sorted out. Um, so, <laughs> okay, so with Solus, the the Gnome Shell scenario is much the same as it was on Ubuntu. Um, you know, it's not automatically detected and you have to fire it about with the two settings to actually get it fully working. Otherwise, you get really weirdly shrunken text in some places. Um, the the text up on the top bar in Gnome Shell is kind of funky. But once you've got them both done, then it, you know, it works. But it's the same thing. You have to use Gnome Tweak Tool. And Budgie inherits the same problems. We piggyback on things like Gnome Control Center. So you have the same usability and discoverability problem that you wouldn't know that you had to get tweak tool to go and change those two settings to make everything then fit your display. You don't have the automatic detection of it. So it sucks just as bad on every distro, basically. And for Mate, you know, it's the same on Solus, it's going to be anywhere else. And out of all the winners, um, Unity 7, Unity 8 was actually really bad. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that quickly. Yeah, that's not up to scratch yet then. No, there was a very funny... I'm not sure the best way to explain this, but the fonts looked kind of semi-torn down the middle when it was at a 4K resolution, and I couldn't for the life of me find an option anywhere to change the scale factor. The settings panel that comes up on the side, you know, their action center, which is kind of like Raven and stuff, I I couldn't find any advanced settings. It's very sparse in terms of what you can change and what you can customize. And nowhere could I find an option to change the scale factor. So I was left with this strangely warped text everywhere with tiny, tiny, tiny little windows. And again, the whole thing was with the icons being minuscule. And But Unity 7, best usability, best accessibility in terms of finding it, because it was all nicely integrated in the display section of the control center. I just went to system settings, click display, there's a scaling factor, turned it up. If they was to... If they was to change the detection of high DPI, they would win hands down. Yeah. Well, so the conclusion then is that when it comes to 4K, Unity is the best desktop environment. Yeah, I didn't expect myself to be saying that. But <laughs> cut the first bit off. Unity is the best desktop environment, according to <laughs> Linux. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about how you get your quotes. Yeah. But then it's, is 4K worth it? No, well, given that you're going to go back to 1080p, no, is the conclusion. No, because, I mean, I've tested it on the Broadwell Nook and the Skylake Nook. Admittedly, the Skylake does a lot better. But if I've got, like, because Google Chrome does actually have support for high DPI, which is really, really nice. So it looks nice at the moment. 
But if I'm watching a 4K video, it's doing some kind of weird scaling. And then I, I can only put it at full screen to play it. Otherwise, it's unusable on the Broadworld system. If I'm looking at screenshots, I'm acutely aware that the screenshot is being sh shown at twice the size it's supposed to be. You can see the visual artifacts. My CPU usage is much higher throughout. And it, my older screen, which is the Samsung, which is 27-inch curved one, as an IPS panel, it was 200 euros cheaper than this thing. And the, the screen itself was of a far higher quality and much easier to drive from any system. So I think if anyone wants to go out and get a monitor today and you really care about the size of the screen, get a widescreen 1440p if you're really going to go that road. And then make sure it's an IPS panel as well because 4K right now, it's a bit of a gimmick. You know, wait a year or so until the all the software support is there because even Windows has problems. Wait for the software support to be there. Wait until other computers can easily handle 4K because it's still a bit of a push in mind like an i7 NUC. Yeah. If it's a bit of a push on there, it's going to tax older systems. So you've got higher CPU usage, higher battery usage. So if you really care about a really big monitor, go for the widescreen 1440s. If you're a normal human being, just get a 1080p monitor. Yeah. And just get a really good screen because now you've got the 1440s and the 4Ks. It's kind of like when smart tellies come out. Normal tellies got really, really cheap and you've got great tellies really cheap. Mm. So just go get a really good 1080 for now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some, some consumer advice coming out of the show. <laughs> um, I like, I, I know we've been talking about this for a while, but I do have uh, one more question. Is, did we have this problem when we went from six, six, 640? Wait, 680? 640 by 480, then 800 Thank you. by they're, 600. They're the yeah. When we went from 640 to 1024, we went from 1024 to 1080. Like, I don't remember these problems, yet all it is is a higher resolution. Why, why is this like such a massive ball ache? Whereas previously, you just sometimes the cables changed a bit. I can still plug one of those blue DIN cables into my PC and plug it into my monitor and get good resolutions. So why is this such a massive problem? Well, speaking of the cables, DisplayPort is actually the thing I hate most about 4K. And to give an example, I just before the show, I just turned off Ubuntu because I've managed to break it already. <laughs> But when I'm booting it up, for whatever reason, it doesn't always find the display part straight away. So it won't always get something coming up on the screen. And when I'm shutting down, it's the same sort of thing with Plymouth. So then you can see like Linux is changing it through the display modes to get display port working. Doesn't always wake it up. Sometimes you have mash buttons just to get it working. It's really a pain. But with HDMI, it just works. You know, like the, the BIOS knows what to do. Linux knows what to do. Hell, even Grub knows what to do. <laughs> you know, with DisplayPort, it's like everything's broken again and it might work and things might come out. And then you have audio problems. Then you have sleep problems. So if there's even problems with the cable, why are we even bothering with the desktop side of it? And I don't recall these kind of problems when we started going HDMI. I really don't recall this level of problems. So time gets away from us. We'd better uh, wrap this up then. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks when hopefully we'll be a four-man team again but I don't know Jesse you'll probably be on holiday somewhere and uh, Fenn will <laughs> probably still be ill and uh, fuck knows what you'll be doing Ike. I'll probably just be here rambling on my own for now 
I love what to hearing it, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, so yeah, I've been Joe. I'm still Aiki. I've been Jesse. Au revoir. See you later.